Last week we completed a short uh, five-week series on perseverance, and we looked at passages in James and First Kings, and Galatians and Romans, Philippians, and in them we saw how utterly important perseverance is to the life of a Christ follower. We saw that there's no spiritual maturity apart from perseverance. We saw that fruitfulness in the Christian life requires it. We saw that having proven character is fundamental to Christian living, and that kind of character is only acquired through perseverance. We saw that without perseverance, people can fall into a cycle of failure, of hopelessness, and despair. Perseverance is that important to the Christian life. Now, after all that emphasis on perseverance, it may surprise you to hear me say that there's something more important than perseverance. We're looking at Revelation chapter 2 this morning, at the first of what's become known as the letters to the seven churches. That title's a little misleading. These are not letters in a traditional sense. They're not formatted like other letters in the New Testament with a salutation at the beginning and a valediction at the end. As far as we know, they never circulated independently of the book of Revelation. That is, if they are letters, they were never sent. They're more like the oracles that one finds in the Old Testament prophets. And so it might be more proper to call them the messages to the seven churches. Let me read the first of those. It's uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Ephesus Church was one of the most important churches in the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul first went to Ephesus, he found a small group of uninstructed believers already there. And he spent three years at Ephesus, making it his home base. Timothy later served as pastor at Ephesus Church. And Ephesus was important in the ministry of the Apostle John. It was a regional church, the biggest, the best known in all of Asia. It was the church that everyone in the area ministerial wished that he pastored. It was the kind of church that the 80-year-old retired pastor remembers when he looks back over his years in ministry. Best church he ever served. It was the church that people knew about and respected. It occurred to me this week as I was working on this that Ephesus Church was a lot like Lockwood Church. As I mentioned, there 
is not a traditional greeting in the seven messages like there are in other letters of the period. St. Paul's, for example. Uh, Paul, in his letters, followed the traditional format. He first identified himself, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Then he recognized and greeted the recipients, for example, to the church of God in Corinth, grace and peace to you, and then concluded with a valediction like the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The messages to the churches in Revelation differ from that traditional format by placing the recipients' names first. For example, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And only then do they identify the one sending the message. In this case, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the valediction in each of the letters expresses a conditional promise rather than a blessing or a benediction. The recipient of this message is the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, that raises questions. Did the church of Ephesus and all the other churches mentioned because it follows the same uh, pattern in all the other messages, did the church of Ephesus have its own angel? And for that matter, does Lockwood Church have its own angel, and the Baptist Church, and the Methodist Church, and the Episcopal Church. And that is the way that some people take it, and perhaps they're right to do so. If there is, if that's the case, when we get to heaven, I'm going to have to meet our angel someday, and I'm not looking forward to that. (laughs) He'll be like, duh, what were you doing? It's not necessary, though, for the word angel to refer to a spiritual being, a heavenly being, at all. The word simply means messenger. So when St. Luke tells us that Jesus sent angeloi, that's plural, angels, ahead of him into a Samaritan village, he just means that he sent messengers. Sometimes God's messengers are ministering spirits, cherubim, seraphim, angels, archangels, and sometimes they're ministering church members, pastors and plumbers and teachers and lawyers. In this case, I think it's likely that the angel or messenger is a teacher or a preacher. Someone who is to bear God's message to each of the churches. The one sending the message is he who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. Who is this and why does he identify himself in such a strange way? Well, as we read through these letters in Revelation 2 and 3, or these messages, it becomes clear that the one sending each of the seven messages is none other than Jesus himself. He presents himself as the one who died and came back to life, as the son of God, as the ruler of creation. In each case, he identifies himself in a way that will encourage that church to trust him and listen carefully to his message. To the Ephesians, he characterizes himself as the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. The word translated as holds is not the usual one, And it's a strong one. It's the verbal form of a noun that means power or might. And even in its verbal form, it usually means to hold power over someone or something. Jesus is here identifying himself as the one who's in charge. The seven stars are the seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor, that received this revelation and which he holds in his right hand. And the right hand is also a symbol of power in ancient literature generally and in the Bible particularly. 
So when we read that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, our first thought might be that Jesus holds the seven churches in order to protect or comfort them. But the power connotations of the words that he uses makes it more likely that he's holding them like a scepter or even a sword. He also says that he walks among, or literally in the middle of, the seven golden lampstands. Remember, the lampstands are a picture of the seven churches. It's interesting, isn't it, that the two images that he uses to represent the churches involve light, stars shine, and when the revelation was written, people knew how to use them to navigate their course. Lamps shine and guide people through the darkness. It's implicit that the church should be a place that shines, a place of light, light shining in a dark place. Those are St. Peter's words. Guiding people in the ways of God. Well, one church in our community actually took the name Lighthouse Church. But all true churches are lighthouses. And all of us followers of Jesus are individual lights. When we're gathered together, our candle power should give off enough light to help people to discern truth from error and be able to navigate their paths. Jesus says he walks in the midst of the churches. That's an interesting thought. He's on top of everything that's going on. Lockwood Church, and the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church. He walks in the midst of the churches. He sees, he knows. In fact, the repeated refrain occurs seven times in the seven messages is, I know, I know, I know. You can't keep secrets from him. But his interest is not merely the interest of a boss watching over his employee's productivity or a master checking up on his servant's faithfulness. It's the interest of a father in the welfare of his son or a husband in the happiness of his bride. Now, I said that the Ephesian church was the one that every pastor in town wanted to lead. It was exemplary in many ways. Look at verse 2. I know your deeds. That word is the one commonly used to denote good deeds, though it can refer to evil deeds. But here, it's good deeds that are in mind. This is a church that was known for the good things it did. People said, oh, I've heard such good things about Ephesus Church. And not just that. The Christians in Ephesus worked hard. The word translated hard work indicates toil or labor that brings on weariness. This is a great church. They sacrificed, they labored. Their spirituality wasn't just window dressing. They were the real deal. But add to good deeds and hard work a third virtue, perseverance. We've seen how great and good perseverance is. We've seen how it plays an integral part in spiritual growth and health. It's almost impossible to overstate the importance of perseverance, and the Ephesian church had it. They didn't give in. They endured hardship, but they did not, the next verse, endure wicked men, not for a moment. And, and that's also something that the risen Christ celebrates. Now, what was it about these men that made them wicked? Were they sexually immoral? Were they thieves? Were they envious and hateful? It's possible, but we're not told about those things. What we are told is that they were deceitful. They made claims about themselves that were not true. They claimed to be apostles. That is, people who were sent from God, but God hadn't sent them. They just lied. 
The book of Revelation tells us repeatedly, in fact, you could almost say it's the sin of the Revelation, that there are people, usually teachers, who claim to be something when they're not. That idea appears six times in just chapters 2 and 3, and then again in chapters 14, 21, and 22. There are false teachers out there. We don't know much about these people that the Ephesians tested and found false, except that they claimed to be apostles. They claimed that God had sent them. They may have been connected to the group called the Nicolaitans that we read about in verse 6 and then in two of the other messages, but we don't know for sure. We do know that within a decade or two, the church father Ignatius would write to Ephesus church and commend them. He wrote, you won't even listen to anyone who doesn't speak truth about Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know how the Ephesian Christians tested, or the word could be translated tried, these imposters. But remember, These people had been under the long-term ministry of the Apostle Paul. They had lived with the godly John. They had been pastored by self-sacrificing Timothy. They had seen the real thing, and that helped them identify the false thing. I read once, and I don't know if it's still true, but it used to be true anyways, that treasury agents are trained to recognize counterfeit money, but they do that by spending most of their time studying real currency. It's impossible to know in advance all the possible differences in a counterfeit, so they become so familiar with the real thing that they know when they're not looking at it. The Ephesians were so familiar with the genuine article that they could detect detect a fraud when they saw him. We need to be so familiar with the Bible and with the ways of God that we can sense when something is not right with a particular teacher. You know, you can feel that something's wrong with a teacher, even when you can't put your finger on what it is. Often that something wrong is not conceptual, it's moral. A teacher can have meaningful insights into Scripture and yet be a false teacher. He can live an immoral life that's driven by pride and greed. Now look at verse 3. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. That verse has been the theme of my preaching over the last two months. What a church this is. Who could ask for more? The answer to that question comes in the next verse. Jesus could ask for more. He does ask for more. And not just from the Ephesus church, but from us as well. Look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. And then this devastating line. You have forsaken your first love. Now, I think it's kind of Jesus to mention their good qualities before coming to this one. But does it bother you that he doesn't stop with their successes? Pat on the back, but he goes on to reprove them for their failures? But of course he reproves them. He loves them. How could he love them and not tell them the hard things that they needed to hear? After her conversion to Christ, a woman from a high caste in India took the English name Ellen, Ellen Gora, and she wrote a poem that was later put to music as a gospel song, became a favorite in the late 18 and 1900s, favorite in the, the Moody Crusades. The third verse asked this question, do you think he, the Lord Jesus, ne'er reproves me? And the answer is, what a false friend he would be 
if he never, never told me of the sins which he must see. Thank God that the one who knows us also loves us enough to tell us of the sins that we don't or don't want to see or see and don't know what to do about. Now, note again what it is the risen Lord objects to. You have forsaken your first love. He doesn't complain that they're not working hard enough. They are. They labor and toil. He doesn't fault them for slipshod doctrine. They are orthodox. He doesn't reproach them for not persevering through hardship. They've endured. He reproves them for not loving as they once did. We need to hear that again. He faults them for not loving as they once loved. You've forsaken your first love. So what love had they forsaken, for God or for people? The fact that he calls it their first love might suggest it was love for God. But remember, the Lord's just acknowledged their deeds, their labor, their perseverance, and their doctrinal accuracy. Maybe love for people is what's in mind. But when we try to look at the love here as either love for God or love for people, we've already wandered off the path. The two are inseparable. These are John's words from elsewhere. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. He doesn't mince words, does he? And then this, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's impossible not to. God has joined love for himself and love for others together. And what God has joined together, let man not put asunder. And yet we try. We think we can somehow love God while ignoring or even despising our fellow man. But if we try to love and worship God while ignoring people, our love for God will inevitably turn into empty rituals and pious self-deception. It's when, as G.R. Beasley Murray put it, love for God wanes, that love for men diminishes. If you find love for men that's diminished, it means that love for God has waned. And it works the other way, too. Some people seem to think that religion is all about loving people and meeting their needs. But if a person forsakes the love of God, his or her love for people will inevitably become manipulative and self-serving. It will end up being the kind of charity that treats people as if they were statistics. It's a hollow love that gives things but doesn't give itself. It's not God's love. Can you see that when we separate love for God from love for people, we're approaching this thing all wrong? And it's all wrong because we're seeing ourselves as the source of a love that might flow in one of two directions, towards God or towards people. But understand that the error here is not just about, or even primarily about, the direction in which love flows, but about the source from which it springs. This is phenomenally important. I am not and can never be the source from which the love of verse 4 originates. If I mistakenly believe I am, I will not only find the Christian life difficult, I will find it impossible. When we read the command, love one another, it is a command, we must always remember what follows. For love is from God. 
You thought you had to manufacture it. Manufacture love towards your thoughtless spouse or your rebellious child. You thought it was your responsibility to generate love toward your enemies. But it's not like that. It's not nearly as bad as that. You don't need to manufacture love at all. You need only to enter into it. Love for God, for fellow Christians, for non-Christians, and even for enemies all comes from the same source. Love is from God. Our job is not to create love or generate it from our own spiritual power. Our job is not to try harder to love, which is what you always hear when somebody preaches on 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, you've got to do a better job at this. You've got to try harder. Our job isn't to try harder. It's to keep ourselves in the love God has for all people at all times. We enter into the love the blessed Trinity has for each other. The love that God has for the world. The love Christ has for his people. Our business as Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ taught us, is to keep ourselves in the love of God. The love of God's always there. We can move out of it, but we can't stop it. Off the coast of Florida is a strong uh, ocean current known as the Gulf Stream. Runs north along the Atlantic coast all the way to Newfoundland, and then it turns east towards Europe. If a sailboat were to cross from Florida to the Bahamas without taking into account the Gulf Stream, it could end up lost somewhere in the Atlantic. The current will carry it north, even though the winds are blowing it east. But if a sailor were to get into the current and head north, he would add about five knots to his speed. The current of God's love runs through the universe like the Gulf Stream runs through the Atlantic. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can slow it. You can hate God, but his love still flows. You can ignore him, but his love doesn't change. Or you can, this is a glorious possibility, get into the current of his love and follow it through all your days. Our business is to live in the love God has, to know and rely on the love God has in us. The way to return to our first love is not to try harder. Still less is it try to work up feelings that we no longer have. That's always a failure. But to put ourselves into the current of God's love. How do we do that? First, this is verse 5, we remember. We remember from whence we've fallen. We remember how we once loved God and others, how things were with us then, what we cared about, how we acted. Remember the place from whence we've fallen. Do you know you can fall without knowing it? I had a friend who liked to skydive, and he got me interested in trying it until I found out how many thousands of dollars it cost to work up to a solo drive. I was saved, not by being smart, but by being cheap from jumping out of an airplane. (laughs) He told me once that when you jump out of an airplane and you're falling at 16 feet a second, it's absolutely essential to remember to look at your altimeter that you're wearing, to know when to open your chute. You feel like you would know, wouldn't you, as you're getting closer to the earth? But he said you need to keep checking it because you won't feel like you're falling. Without a point of reference, you'll feel like you're flying. You'll feel like Superman until you hit the ground. The risen Lord here calls us to locate our point of reference. Look up and see how far you are from the airplane, or in this case, where you once were when you were being carried by the love of God. 
Remember the height from which you've fallen. Check your reference point. Then he says, and remember, this is to Christ followers. These are church members. These are respectable religious people. He then says, repent. That verb is in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. Repent. The idea behind the word repent is to change one's thinking. That's the etymology of the word. Meta, to change. Noia, from the Greek word nous, mind. When we repent, we change our minds. We think differently. Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus that they need to change their minds, to stop thinking that mere doctrinal accuracy is good enough. Stop thinking that the Christ follower's life is just about the deeds he does and the work he accomplishes and the trials through which he perseveres. It's about, and it's always been about, loving God with all our hearts, souls, strength, and mind, and loving others as ourselves. That's the life. It's what God planned for us. Christ didn't go to the cross to make good, respectable religious people or so that we could get our catechism answers right or teach a Sunday school class on doctrine. He died to save us, which is another way of saying he died to make us those people who love God with all their hearts, souls, strength, and mind and love their neighbors as themselves. But repentance, the change of mind that sees God, ourselves, and others differently, which is a beautiful thing, it's a glorious thing. Repentance won't even get off the ground unless we change our deeds. If we just keep doing the same old things, repentance won't be able to get any traction in our lives. It'll stop before it starts. A change of mind requires a change of actions, and a change of actions sustains a change of mind. So the master urges the Ephesians to repent and do the things they did at first. Let me just ask, what was it you did at first? What was it you did in the past that kept you living in the love of God? Were you reading the Bible daily? Do it again. Were you part of a group that prayed together, studied scripture? Do it again. Refeeding the poor or serving in a ministry or helping the homeless, do it again. See, you don't enter the beautiful and loving Christian life with your brain alone, however much we'd like to. It takes both thought and deed. Remember from once you've fallen, repent, think differently, and do what you did at first. And then this word. The master says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That is a frightening thought. The church building remains. Services continue. People gather. But the light is gone. God save us from such an end. God save Lockwood Community Church from that end. And God make us the people of the first love. Let's pray. God, we don't ask for you to make us stronger so that we can love more. Or make us better. We 
we do ask you to bring us into your love. Make us people of the first love. For Jesus' sake, amen.